I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to the, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. Matthew, chapter 5, we're beginning our second sermon in a series on the Beatitudes, the opening point of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5. Hear now the word of the Lord. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Our passage today, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. It's an odd beatitude, isn't it? Blessed are those who mourn. When we take evaluation of our own life, that doesn't really seem like much of a blessing, does it? Many of us, if you were to take inventory of our own lives or hearts or thoughts on any given day, boy, we would sure like the kind of lives that don't involve a whole lot of mourning. That would be really great. How is it that the blessed life is a mourning life? Well, I noted last week when we began our series that there's a few things that we need to understand about what Jesus is doing in his sermon and what Matthew is doing in laying out his own gospel if we're going to understand each individual beatitude. First of all, we noted that in a sense, all of the gospel of Matthew is about the kingdom of God, or we might call it the kingdom of heaven. Here we might see it as the kingdom of Christ. And insofar as all of Matthew is concerning itself with the kingdom of God, Jesus now turns to begin to preach on what exactly is the kingdom like? What is its character? For those citizens of the kingdom, what are they like? What's the, what's the culture? Every kingdom, you know, has a tangible culture. Whether it's the little kingdoms in our home, whether it's whether it's our city here in Denton, we've got a certain kind of culture. Maybe here in the United States, or as you travel to other parts of the world, you notice there are different kinds of distinct cultures. That when people come together, united by 
a single creed or identity or nationality anywhere in the world, that there's a kind of culture, a way of speaking and acting and relating to one another that binds them together, and that's the nature of kingdoms. Well, so it is with the kingdom of God, that there's a certain kind of tangible culture that comes with it, that can be seen and heard and experienced. But it's not, a, it's not a tangible culture that can be experienced personally by every single person out there. No, we also noted last week that these Beatitudes, insofar as they are indicative of the kingdom of God, then they are blessings of the covenant that Christ has made, his covenant of grace. That what we see here is true of every single disciple, every single person who is in Christ by faith. And it's, not, and it's not the case that some of us embody some of these beatitudes and others of us embody others of these attitudes. No, all of these beatitudes belong to every single believer in their totality because all of them are part and parcel of the blessings of the new covenant of grace. This is really important because what it does is it guards us from coming up against this list because our hearts, whenever we come up against a list in the Bible, isn't it true? Our hearts are so prone to cling to lists. Am I doing that right? Have I nailed this yet? Is God happy with me now? Am I really a Christian? No, what we see in the Beatitudes is this is what God in his great grace produces in the power of his Holy Spirit in the lives of those whom he has brought into his kingdom, those who've been brought by repentance and faith to trust in Christ. We noticed last week that the first Beatitude addressed those who were poor in spirit. And that wasn't talking necessarily about material poverty. It was talking more about those who understand and see in light of God who they really are. Yes, as those made in his image, but even above that, as image bearers who are transgressors, lawbreakers, sinners, and they are crushed by God's law. And yet that's not the end of it. Because that is how God in his grace moves the poor in spirit to Christ. Pointing them to Christ, leading them to Christ, clinging to Christ, resting in Christ. And it's only in Christ, then, that they become inheritors of his kingdom. Well, I hope that we're able to see today that there's a certain kind of logic that follows in the Beatitudes. That that first Beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, is necessarily followed by this second Beatitude, that blessed are those who mourn. But what are we talking about when we talk about those who mourn? Are we talking about Christians that go around and they're always a bit morose and, and kind of bitter and always frowning and upset about something somewhere? Isn't that what a Calvinist is? Maybe. Always talking about wretches and being a worm and, and things like that. How depressing. Is that what we're talking about? Is there a certain level of kind of mourning or sadness that I need to be able to reach if I'm going to end up fulfilling what I see here? No, if I want the blessed life, is, is it my job then to well up in myself, in my own strength, in my own power, some kind of, I don't know, sadness? Is that how that, that works? Or is it perhaps talking to anybody that, Mourns at any time. We all mourn. We live in a world that is cursed by sin, seen most notably in the reality of death. 
So how many of us have attended a funeral at some point or another, and we have mourned, not only with fellow Christians, but with those who would not call themselves Christians, all mourning together, knowing that there is something unnatural about what has taken place here. And we mourn. Some mourn as those without hope, says the Apostle Paul, and others mourn as those with hope. What I hope to argue over the course of the next few minutes is that godly mourning is a blessing. That godly mourning is a blessing. And it's a blessing because God comforts the godly. And I'll explain all of that as we go. Consider this first point, that godly mourning is a blessing. What does it say here? It says in verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn. If we're going to understand what it is that Jesus is talking about when he talks about mourning, then we need to understand that the Bible is going to distinguish between a kind of worldly grief and a godly grief. Now, when I say a worldly grief, what I mean is those things that I just talked about, that we share a kind of grief with our neighbors, whether they're Christians or not. That when we show up to a funeral of somebody that we mutually know, that we grieve with them whether or not they're fellow Christians or not. Then when the cowboys get, once again, taken out of the playoffs earlier than they should have, we mourn with our neighbors, whether or not they're Christian or not. Well, maybe not some of you, but some of you rejoice, and that's just a mark of your unregeneracy, and that's okay. But we mourn. Or, or what about all the myriad moments in our lives where maybe that test comes back in class and it's not the grade that we hoped for and labored for? Or, or what about that time at work where the guy in the cubicle next to you gets promoted? Or what about when your child ends up acting or speaking or doing things contrary to the hopes and the dreams and the prayers that you have had for them over many, many years. All of us mourn in one way or the other. And that is just a common experience of life in this world, is it not? And so there's a kind of worldly grief. But there's also a kind of, a second kind of grief. Beyond a worldly grief, and we might call it a sinful grief. It's a self-centered grief. It's, it's a selfishly motivated grief. Let me just give you a handful of examples from the scriptures. Consider Cain from the very beginning of the Bible. Cain says this to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. If you go back and look at Genesis 4, what you see is that Cain was more concerned for his sentence than his sin. And in this way, we see a kind of worldly and a sinful grief. Or what about Amnon? Maybe a name that a few of you are familiar with, 2 Samuel 13, that when Amnon learned that it was illegal for him to marry his half-sister Tamar, he was so tormented that it made him sick to his stomach. He couldn't handle it. He mourned. But his grief was not ultimately spiritual. His grief was carnal. And his grief was the kind of grief that led him to eventually violate Tamar, never show remorse for it, until two years later he's killed by one of his fellow brothers. Also, Ahab comes to mind. 1 Kings 21, he coveted, remember, Naboth's vineyard. But when Naboth refused Ahab's offer for his vineyard on religious grounds, the text says this, Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen and he lay down on his bed and he turned away his face and he would eat no food, 1 Kings 21. Ahab grieved not getting his own way. 
So he had his wife Jezebel kill Naboth, and he just took the vineyard for himself. That is not godly grief. That would be a kind of sinful sorrow, a self-pitying sorrow that leads us to get what we think we need outside of God to be satisfied. Ahab is a prime example. Or perhaps what about the most famous of all, Judas? Boy, his, the end of his life seems so positive. At first it says he was seized with remorse, then he returned the silver and he said, I have sinned, I have betrayed innocent blood. And you may remember the chief priest turned to him and said, what is that to us? You need to go deal with that yourself. And Judas threw away the money into the temple and he went and he hung himself. He committed suicide. J.C. Ryle commented poignantly on Judas. This is what he says. It is possible for a man to feel his sins, even to be sorry for them, to be under strong convictions of guilt and express deep remorse to be pricked in conscience and exhibit much distress of mind and yet for all of this not repent with his heart. Present danger or the fear of death may account for all of his feelings, but the Holy Ghost may have done no work whatsoever in his soul. That kind of grief, that kind of sorrow, you understand, is always horizontal. It's never vertical. It's the kind of grief that always views my circumstances and my surroundings, of my sentence, my consequences, that, it's, that it grieves more getting caught than the fact that, it, that we have sinned against an all-holy creator. It's a worldly kind of grief. I think it's the kind of grief, just as an example, that may be underneath that phrase that we hear so many people say so often, well, I don't think I could ever forgive myself. You realize that unbelief that, or underneath that so often is just an unbelief in God's promises. It's, a, it's an unbelief or a rejection or a scoffing of the sufficiency of Christ's work to forgive and impute righteousness to sinners like us. Or perhaps it's a regret that is merely focused on my loss and what I did wrong and what other people think of me, but not ultimately about my sin before an all-holy God. Remember what David said, against you and you alone have I sinned. Only here's the deal. It wasn't just against God alone that he had sinned. David had sinned against all kinds of people, above all Bathsheba and, his, and her wife. His wife, or her husband Uriah. But even in all of that, he considers it and he goes, no, even in all of this sin, above all, what I'm most focused on, what I'm most consumed with is that it's you that I've sinned against. Worldly and godly grief is always sorrow, sorry for getting caught or for unpleasant circumstances or maybe for a season of hurting that person that we care about and we love about and we don't, or we love and we don't want them to be mad at us or not like us anymore, not come around us anymore, but it is not ultimately a Holy Spirit wrought conviction in a heart that needs to turn from sin to Christ in faith for forgiveness. No, that's the kind of grief that is a godly grief. It's the kind of grief that the Apostle Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Keep your finger here in Matthew 5. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7 with me. Such an important text. 
2 Corinthians 7. Beginning in verse 8. Paul's written them a letter, and in that letter he's rebuked them. He's shared a little bit about his own circumstances, and it's made them grieve. And this is what he says in verse 8. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. And here's the money verse, verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. What we have here, especially there in verse 10, is really just a reformulation of the second beatitude, don't we? Jesus said, blessed are the mourners, for they shall be comforted. And the Apostle Paul says, godly grief produces repentance leading unto salvation. Mourners will be comforted, eternally so, in Christ. And so you see then that the first and the second beatitude go together. You can go back and glance at that in Matthew 5. The first and the second beatitude go together. Conviction of sin, that's what we talked about last week. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who are convicted of sin in light of an all-holy God. That conviction of sin leads to contrition for sin, which is what we see now in the second beatitude. A true poverty of spirit naturally produces godly sorrow for sin. The kind of godly sorrow that seeks comfort and consolation in Christ alone. Such that we say with David, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. And he saves those who are crushed in spirit. That's who our God is. But when we consider this godly grief, what does it look like? What kinds of manifestations does it have in the life of a believer? I want to give you three. First of all, we want to consider how the godly grieve their own sin. That's our first point, the grief of the godly, how the godly grieve their own sin. We were already in there earlier. I want you to go to James chapter 4. I read it earlier in the, in the service, and I read it because I knew we were coming back to it, and it's an important text. It's an important cross-reference to what we're studying today. James chapter 4, right toward the end of your Bible, if you're in Revelation and you're seeing things like dragons and bloody Jesus, then go back to your left. You'll find James, James chapter 4. And here Jesus, or here James rather, is rebuking this church, individual Christians, and he's rebuking them for their sinful passions and their sinful pride and their sinful presumption. And look at what he says right in the middle of this paragraph, right in the middle, this is the heart of it. Draw near to God, he says, verse 8, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Here's be wretched and mourn and weep. That word mourn is the exact same word that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 5. He says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter, that is all of the enjoyment that you get from being friends with the world, all the enjoyment that you're getting from being at enmity with God because of your friendship with the world, no, turn all of that laughter, he says, into mourning, 
same word. And your joy into gloom. And here's the heart of it. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. The great 18th century Baptist John Gill commented on this passage in this way. He refers to this mourning as a, as a soul affliction. It's an affliction of our souls. And he describes it this way. It's an inward mourning and weeping over the plague of the heart, the impurity of nature, and the various sins of life. But then he says this, after a godly sort, in an evangelic way, the evangel being the gospel, in a way that the gospel produces. He says, looking to Jesus, being affected with the pardoning grace and the love of God in Christ. Godly grief is an evangelical grief. Godly grief is a gospel grief. It's a grief that is that has rotten us by the reality of our own sin when we're confronted by God's perfect law. And it is a godly grief that leads us, according to the good news of the gospel, to Christ as our righteousness, that we might be led to hope in Him and rest in Him alone and rejoice in Him alone. Godly grief is an evangelical grief. So brothers and sisters, if you were to come across a passage like this, what I don't want you to think is that somehow you have to figure out a way to stir up emotions that often feel alien to you on a day-by-day basis and walk around looking depressed and morose or otherwise you're not being a faithful and good Christian, the kind of Christian of which God would approve. What it's saying is that when the law of God confronts the reality of your sin in your life, the way that you use your tongues, the way that you use your body, the way that you use your money, the way that you use your space, the way that you use all that God has given you for His glory and for the good of others, and all of the ways that God's law confronts you and you see your sin for what it is, those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit will genuinely sorrow over it. That it makes us sad. It makes us sad because we know that we have sinned against an all-holy God who has been infinitely good to us. And yet that mourning is meant not to leave us there. Let's see who can mourn good enough to enter the kingdom. Right? So we don't want to throw ourselves into some kind of like monastic life where we're Harsh and self-flagellating on ourselves all the time as if that's ultimately what brings about the kind of sanctification that God would be happy with. No, that's not what we're talking about. It's the kind of mourning that leads us to go, I can have no joy if my joy is not in Christ. I can have no comfort if my comfort isn't chiefly in Christ. Christ is my chiefest comfort. That's where I need to go. He's my only comfort. We see this kind of godly grief in a number of examples in the Bible. David, for instance, says, My iniquities have gone over my head. I'm drowning in him, he says. Like a heavy burden there, too heavy for me. I confess my iniquity and I am sorry for my sin, Psalm 38. Psalm 51, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. It's all I seem to be able to see. Abraham said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, the Almighty, the All-Holy, the All-Powerful Lord. I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Psalm 
I am nothing. Job the righteous. And by the way, when you read the book of Job and you open up to Job chapter 1, verse 1, the author is making very clear that Job is a righteous man on all accounts. And yet Job the righteous, this is what he says when he's confronted with the glorious providence of God and the reality of his own unbelief. He says, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. That's godly grief. The kind of grief that turns us away from self-sufficiency and and from self-pity and turns us toward God in faith and of the mercy that he offers sinners like us. I think it's the same godly grief that the Apostle Paul gets at in Romans chapter 7. He says, for I don't even understand my own actions sometimes. Do you ever feel that way? For I don't know what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Now I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I, for I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. You ever feel that way? He says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And this is ultimately why I think Paul's speaking about himself here as a Christian, is because all of this grief is ultimately an evangelical grief. Who will rescue me from this body of death, from this flesh on this side of the resurrection that continues to tempt me and lure me away from God and his gospel? Who will deliver me? He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Who will deliver me? Ultimately, Christ will. Christ is my only hope. Christ is my only righteousness. It's in Christ that I rest all of my faith according to his promises. So we've seen Old Testament examples and and New Testament examples in the Apostle Paul. I could list a number of, of others in the scriptures, but a number of historical examples. Consider David Brainerd, the missionary to the Indians said this, at this time God gave me such an affecting sense of my own vileness and the exceeding sinfulness of my heart that there seemed to be nothing but sin and corruption within me. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon said, brethren, when I have carefully considered and inwardly perceived the holiness of God's law, this is what God's law does, I have felt as though the sharp edge of a saber A sword has been drawn across my heart and I have shivered and trembled. What poor creatures we are. The best of men are men at best and apart from the work of the Holy Spirit and the power of divine grace, hell itself does not contain greater monsters than you and I might become. That's a godly grief. It's to see our sin for what it is and to mourn it. And yet, for those of us who mourn, there are scriptural assurances. For those of us who see our sin and are sad about our sin, we're not meant to wallow in that sadness. There are assurances that we've been given as we turn away from ourselves into Christ. Namely, that God calls us to mourn in the assurance that if we do, he will graciously respond in blessing. That when we draw near to God in this way, enabled by his grace, he draws near to us. Consider David's beatitude. O taste and see 
that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. Or Psalm 51 again, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. But what kind of hearts are those except hearts that God himself gives us by the power of his Holy Spirit? That apart from the the enlivening work of his Spirit, the regenerating work of his Spirit, we have stony hearts, and stony hearts are not contrite hearts and, and, and sinful Spirits, rebellious spirits, are not broken spirits. That comes by a preemptive work of grace through the Holy Spirit to give us the kind of heart that sees our sin, mourns it, and then turns to Christ. Seeing that in Christ, indeed, the Lord is good to those who turn to Him. So brothers and sisters, when we consider our sin, don't think for a minute, don't think for one hot minute that you can add anything to Christ's finished work by being extra sad about your sin. That is not what godly mourning looks like. It is not an earning of your righteousness before God. It is not a proving of yourself before God. It is a spirit-wrought disposition in the heart of a believer when they're confronted about the reality of their own sin according to God's law that leads them to to mourn their sin and turn to Christ where his only joy can be found, where his only comfort can be found. So the godly grieve their own sin, first of all, but secondly, the godly grieve sin in God's people. The Holy Communion service in the 1662 Book of Common Prayer includes this confession. We acknowledge and bewail our manifold sins and wickedness. The emphasis there being on the plural, our. It's confessing the sins of the church or of churches. And when you and I consider our own biographies or we consider our own lives or we consider other churches of which we're aware, we see symptoms of churches that have left Christ, that have mixed the gospel with the law, that have rejected the the word of God altogether. What is it that we see? We see in so many churches careful and earnest exposition of the scriptures that it's in serious decline. We see theological compromises widespread and growing because biblical authority is being questioned or, flaunt, or flouted. That the gospel message is being constantly corrupted by worldly ideologies. Name any number of them, whether it's a critical race theory on the one extreme or a kind of kinism on the other. There's always another ideology corrupting the gospel. Seminary professors deny the inerrancy of scripture, the deity of Christ, and the reality of his atonement. And in our own churches, mysticism is rampant. Professing Christians are often more interested in angels and demons than in the person and the work of Christ. Public worship is increasingly being geared to the worshipers rather than the one being worshipped. Concerts replace congregational worship and skit teams supplant sermons. Biblical ethics are compromised or abolished. Nearly every mainline denomination right now is LGBTQIA plus affirming. In some charismatic circles, epidemic hysteria is being masqueraded as a mighty work of the Holy Spirit. In others, miraculous healing is being promised on a name it and claim it kind of basis. 
Moral standards are crumbling while dishonesty, immorality, greed, pride, sharp practice, and self-service are tolerated even and especially among church leaders. And all of this without a semblance of biblical discipline. And what is our response to all of that? We see it in our Facebook feeds and our Twitter feeds and we see it on the front pages of online newspapers and all over the place. And what is our response? Is it, is it apathy? Do we just go, Mom, oh well. Is it self-righteousness like we talked about last week? <laughs> well, thank God we're not a church like that one. No, I think we should mourn the blemishes in Christ's bride. This is an implication of godly mourning. Consider the Apostle Paul. This is what he says, 2 Corinthians 12, 21. He says to the Corinthians, I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. Mourning over wayward churches is a godly thing to do. You may recall that the Apostle Paul in his first letter to them, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, told them the same thing. He says, are you so arrogant in all of your pride and all of your blustering and all of your self-exaltation? Are you so arrogant? Ought you not rather to mourn? Same word that we see in Matthew chapter 5. He says later on, beginning of 2 Corinthians, all this is to the Corinthians, just using this as an example. He says, for I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Godly love leads to a godly mourning for wayward churches. Because Christ's bride is precious. Because Christ has purchased her with his own blood. And would we, in our own sin, in our own wisdom, in our own rebellion, would we trample underfoot the Son of God? I think Paul's spirit here is not that dissimilar from Old Testament prophets. Ezra withdrew before the house of God and he went to the chamber of Jehoanan, the, the son of Eliashib, and, and that's where he spent the night. And it says, neither eating bread nor drinking water because he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. They'd been brought back just as God had promised to bring them back. And even as they were, even as they were standing in the land of their fathers... They still rebelled and disbelieved against God's word. And Ezra mourned for them. And so this is, I don't think, a self-righteous mourning. It's an evangelical mourning. It's a gospel mourning because we care about gospel churches. And I know that there are a few of you that in your own biography, you have come out of churches where perhaps the gospel had been corrupted with too much law, legalism, and moralism, or you've come out of, of a church where there have been abusive or disqualified leaders, and those have left indelible marks and wounds on you. And there's a temptation, I think, for you, just like there would be for every one of us, to look at those former churches and, and to grow self-righteous or to grow bitter or to, or to grow judgmental. And I think what we see, just this godly mourning, is a ought not we rather mourn. 
Should we not rather? And I'm not talking about disagreements on secondary doctrines. I'm talking about sin. And should not that be the kind of mourning that would lead us to storm the throne of grace on their behalf? That God would restore the joy of his salvation to those people. So there's no room for self-righteous mourning when we think back about churches that have wounded us or that have corrupted the gospel or have left the gospel or when we drive by First United Methodist Church that has rejected God's word in the gospel or any number of churches here in town to grow self-righteous, but rather we ought to mourn and that mourning should lead us to Christ to pray and to plead. And we do so with this assurance We mourn with this assurance, Ephesians 5, Christ loves his church. And he will present her to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Oh. Isn't that assuring that our sin can't thwart Christ's power. He will accomplish all of his purposes in his church. And between now and then, we pray and we plead and we mourn from a Holy Spirit, from a kind of Holy Spirit-enabled mourning, a sorrow for sin that leads us to Christ and, and pleads for them. Thirdly, the godly Grieve sin in God's world. We grieve sin in God's world. We know, John says, that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. 1 John 5, 19. That's the world that we live in. Peter says this of Lot, related to Abraham, book of Genesis, Lot greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. The psalmist said this, Psalm 119, 136, my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. The Apostle Paul, Acts 17, 16. Now Paul was waiting for them in Athens and his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Luke 19, when Jesus drew near to Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. Beloved, it is okay to not be neutral about the world in which we live. We should see the sin around us and it should lead us to mourn in a godly way. Not in a self-righteous way, not in a, boy, aren't we just so much better than the world kind of way, but of remembering the grace that we've received in Christ and doubling up our own efforts and our, and our own intentionality and our own ministry to our neighbors and our families and our friends that God through his gospel might save many in this city and all over the world from idolatry and impurity and sexual immorality, but we've got to preach the gospel. And so it's okay to to look at certain sins in the world and have it trigger your gag reflex and have it make you sad. And it should. If it doesn't, then that's like a, a dash light that's gone on. There's something wrong under the hood. 
that godly grief mourns the world like Lot and like Paul and, and like others. And so we see, first of all, in our beatitude that godly mourning is a blessing. But I want to conclude with this. Why is it a blessing? It's ultimately because of this, because God comforts mourners. Because God comforts mourners. I've alleged, I've, I've alluded to it a number of times so far. Matthew chapter 5, it says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Parakaleo. It's the idea of calling to one side. It's, 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 it's not merely a patting on the back. It is, it is to have something or someone outside of yourself come alongside you to strengthen you. It's, it's the same idea of encouraging someone. Then when someone grows faint or weary, it's to say, keep going. I'm with you. I'll help you. That's the idea of comfort here. I just started a workout program this week with a number of men in our church, and it's, my body is just like a giant wound right now. And there's days throughout the week, and this is such a trite example, but there's just days throughout the week where you go, man, I don't know if I want to do this today. And we were on a text thread, and, and guys are on there going, hey, this is what I did today, and and yeah, this was hard, but keep going. And, and I think in, in some small but kind of trite way, that's the way the Christian life is. And with the resources that God has given us in the gospel, we come alongside and, and we aim to be comforted, to be encouraged, to be strengthened, to have resources outside of ourselves applied to us in such a way that we would be strengthened for the race that we're being called to run. That's the idea of being comforted. That it's much more than a consoling pat on the shoulder. It has, a, it has a, a dynamic dimension to it of being strengthened. And so here's the question then. Where does our help come from? So here's all I did. I want to take that word, will be comforted, parakaleo, and, and I just want to take all of its cognates, right? All of the words that belong to that family for comfort, and I just want to trace it throughout the New Testament, and this is what I came up with. This is where ultimately our comfort comes from. Number one, I'm going to give you seven real quick, seven sources of our comfort. Number one, our comfort comes from God the Father, Romans 5, 15, 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement, Periclesi, same word, encouragement, strengthening. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that God the Father, first of all, encourages, strengthens, comforts us. But our comfort also comes from God the Son. 1 John 2, 1 to 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, parakletos, same word, with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And here he's talking about, so often we think about this as being like we're in a legal room and Jesus is our defense attorney before the Father. And that's not really what we see here in the idea of an advocate is that he's a helper. He's one that comes alongside us to, to help us and strengthen us and assist us and give us and resource us with everything that we don't have but we need, that it all comes from him. That same word is used not only of God the Son, but thirdly, of God the Holy Spirit. So our, 
Our comfort comes from God the Father. It comes from God the Son. Thirdly, it comes from God the Holy Spirit. And John 14, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another parakletos. Same word, helper. To be with you forever in the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, and he dwells in you and will be with you. So our comfort comes from the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, but fourthly, it comes from God's word. Romans 15, 4, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement, paraklesis, same word, through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope that we are comforted. Our comfort comes from the scriptures. It's sourced in God's word. Do we go there for comfort to 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 know God and hear from God and receive his promises and believe on them by faith and to rest in Christ. So fourthly, our comfort comes from God's word. Fifthly, it comes from faithful preaching. 1 Corinthians 14, 3, on on the other hand, Paul says, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement. Paraclesis, same word, comfort, and for their consolation. That the faithful preaching of God's word, of rightly expositing what God has said and applying it to God's people and the power of the Holy Spirit is meant to be resources from God to come alongside us, to strengthen us, to uphold us, to comfort us, to help us to have more courage when our knees are are, are shaky and our arms are drooping, Hebrews 12, so that we might have more courage. To be comforted. Faithful preaching does that. Sixthly, so does Christian fellowship. This is one of my favorites. You say, well, I don't need to be a member of a church. I don't need to be around other Christians. All I have is God's word. Well, one of the ways that God comforts mourners, the way that he strengthens us and and gives us the resources that we need to endure is through Christian fellowship in the church. Philemon 7, Paul says this, For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Much joy and comfort from you. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, Therefore, encourage, parakaleo, encourage, same word, encourage one another, comfort one another. Romans 1.12, Paul's saying, I want to come and impart a gift to you. You remember that? So that, he says, so that we may be mutually encouraged. Sum parakaleo, same word, but we're doing it together, side by side, coming alongside one another by each other's faith, that we be encouraged by one another's faith. Romans 1.12, So we're encouraged by God the Father, comforted by God the Son, comforted by God the Spirit, that we are comforted by God's Word and faithful preaching and Christian fellowship, and finally, in seventh, we are comforted by Christ's return. 1 Thessalonians 4.18, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, what's that therefore, therefore, right? Therefore, because 
We will be caught together with the clouds of the Lord in the air because we will always one day be with the Lord physically in person, seeing him face to face on account of all of these things. Therefore, same word, encourage one another with these words. Christ is coming. He's gone to prepare a place for us, but he has not left us behind. He will come again for us. Therefore, Paul says, comfort one another with these words. How is it that God comforts mourners? Well, God the Father does it directly, through God the Son, by God the Holy Spirit. One of the means by which he does that is God's word, especially when it's faithfully preached. It's the blessing of Christian fellowship, and it is the promise of Christ's glorious return, which you and I are tasked to remind one another about often, that we would live today in light of that day, hoping in Christ. And that leads us, I think, ultimately to the bonus round. Here's the bonus round. How does God ultimately and finally comfort mourners? That God will finally bring us home. Isaiah 35.10, just listen to a few of these. This is speaking about all of God's elect through the ages in the new heavens and the new earth, Isaiah says this, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. <laughs> with singing. Christianity is the only major religion in the world that's a singing religion. With singing, everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and, and sorrow and sighing. That is, mourning will flee away. Do you look forward to that day? That's what God promises mourners in his kingdom. Of those who mourn their sin and rest in Christ. Psalm 126.2. In that day, quote, our mouth will be filled with laughter and our tongues with shouts of joy. Isn't that awesome? Do you believe that? Revelation 21, 3 and 4, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Beloved, it is good in the power of the Holy Spirit that we mourn our sin and rest in Christ. But know this, oh dear mourner, beloved saint, your mourning has an expiration date. Because our sin has an expiration date. Christ has already freed us from it's penalty and it's power. We are free in Christ, righteous in him. And one day he will free us from the very presence of sin once and for all. And all we will have is joy and singing as we reign with him forever. Blessed are the mourners, for they will be comforted. Amen? Let's pray.